0: Welcome to At the Point of a Knife. I'm your host, Eric Navaretti. Each episode, I sit down with the writers, producers, directors behind the modern era of horror and explore their inspirations, setbacks, and what it really takes to make your favorite films. Today, I'm interviewing writer duo and married couple David Cairns and Fiona Watson. They're the writers behind the supernatural Scottish horror film Let Us Pray starring Liam Cunningham, Pollyanna McIntosh, and Hannah Stanbridge. You can catch it on Netflix. Let's check out some of the trailer and then hop into it.
1: Come midnight, and the wicked must pay for their sins, it's me who comes to collect. According to our records, you are one Alexander Monroe, and you died in 1983, aged 79. <laughs> i must see well, huh? No wallet, no ID, no phone, no keys. Just this book. Why did Dr. Hume attack you? Because the clock is ticking. Midnight is approaching. He said you know.
2: Know what exactly? That the price of our sins is paid for in blood.
1: Every last one. So who's first?
0: What have you done, right? Go to hell. Where bother? the devils are here all i want from them is their souls you though i want so much more what is it Today, I have David Cairns and Fiona Watson with me. They are the writers of the 2014 horror film Let Us Pray.
2: Hello! We're also a married couple. There's a fine history of couples writing movies together. I don't know if we quite fit in.
0: We have destroyed that fine history. (laughs) I think that's a great place to start actually. How did you decide to start working together and was that in concurrence with your relationship developing or did you find out afterwards?
2: We were living in the same house and writing and the cross fertilisation was happening all the time so it just seemed like a natural thing to do.
1: I think we were introduced by a producer. We
2: were introduced by an independent film producer, yes, that's how we met. And
1: he thought we might get on and spark ideas.
2: And I don't know why he thought that. Why do you think he thought that?
0: Smarter than we give him credit
1: for.
2: Okay.
0: <laughs> <laughs> was that also a horror project back then, or was this a totally different genre? Yes, it was. Yes, there's been a, a number over the years. And with that producer, we had
1: two films on the go, which never happened. One was a vampire movie, and one was a sort of modern take on uh, Eyes Without a Face.
2: Involving face transplants which hadn't actually happened at that point. And then a few years later, it did.
1: Yeah, we were right on the verge. It would have been...
2: and, and cloning. Cloning was involved <laughs>
1: too. It, it would have been a good time to do it, yeah, because yeah. it was getting to be more like a real possibility.
0: So that shows you how long ago it was. How long have you both been writing? What led you into this space, into horror specifically?
2: I think we have the similarity in our backgrounds and that we were both watching the same kinds of movies when we were kids on a weekend on the BBC where they'd show a horror double bill on BBC 2 and they would show an old movie usually an early Universal followed up with a slightly more modern one usually a Hammer and we were brought up on those so she was in Edinburgh I was in not that far away really and just outside Dundee and we were both watching the BBC 2 horror double bill and I was also obsessed with a book named The Giffords and it's become a legendary tome I
1: have it here
2: and I used to I didn't own it, but it, was, it I was Constantly getting out of the library. And then years later, uh, David bought it for me as a gift.
1: Dennis Gifford's Pictorial History of Horror Movie. Mm. That was my Bible. So kids, we would leaf through this thing and wonder, would we ever get to see all these cool movies? Because it's full of things that would not show up on television. And remember, we only had... uh, We had three
2: channels, and then then we had four channels. A few years ago, David started a mission to watch every single film in Dennis Gifford's book.
0: How's the progress on that watch list coming along? I think it's about a dozen that I just can't get.
2: You've got on quite far, really. You called it See Reptilicus and Die. So we did watch Reptilicus, but we didn't die. It
1: was supposed to be the grand finale. Failed to see every film in the book, and we failed to die.
2: Yeah, we're just failures all round, aren't we?
0: This is basically a a tale of unending. Uh, yeah. You both grew up watching horror films. You both had a passion for them. What was the leaping-off point that made you think you wanted to start writing them?
2: Oh, well, when I was 12, I just decided I wanted to be a filmmaker, but I wasn't quite sure exactly what area I wanted to specialize in. I could draw and I could write. First, I thought I wanted to be a production designer because I had the Star Wars Special Edition magazine which showed you all about how a film was made. And I was fascinated by the production design drawings. And I thought, oh, maybe I could do that. But I also wrote stories. I ended up going to art school. And as soon as I got there, I was really unhappy. Because what I really wanted to do was be involved in filmmaking. And they didn't have a filmmaking course. I went into illustration. But then a few years after that, I started doing the thing I really wanted to do, was making mm-hmm. movies. I toyed with the idea of being a hypheny, a writer-director. I made a short film with Kevin Kid. Trainspotting spotting Kevin the kids who's now like a big name, fresh out of drama school at the time. And when I'd finished that, I was so utterly exhausted, emotionally and physically, I just thought, I can't be a director, so I'll be a writer. I'll just do the one thing.
1: I was going to art school in Edinburgh where there was a film, course, and made my first short film there. And then the trick was, since there seemed to be no path into the industry, it's quite good if you have a skill that you can trade off, something you can do for other people. I did actually learn how to edit films. Didn't have any contacts that would ever lead me to getting paid to do it. So I came out of film school, kept making short films by hook or by crook because I had no other tactic for becoming a filmmaker. So trying to develop feature projects, and then meeting Fiona and developing feature projects with her, and attracting development funding occasionally, attracting production funding in one case, but it was uh, government funding, it was money from the lottery. And the rule was that you had to match it with industry fine funding, which never arrived. Uh, so we had a half million pounds, uh, and we could never put together the um, the matching finance.
2: Well, what's funny about that movie is that it was my breakup movie. You know how mm-hmm. directors or writers have their breakup movie? Mm-hmm. The Brood, David Cronenberg divorce movie. Mm-hmm. Well, this, this vampire movie was my breakup movie. It was all about my <laughs> boyfriend. Mm-hmm. Being a psychic vampire.
0: <laughs> what was the name of that going to be? Blood
1: Relative.
2: Oh, Blood Relative. Oh, what a bloody awful title. It
0: was a reasonable title, except
1: there had already been a of Role movie called Blood Relatives. It <laughs> was a flawed title, I think.
0: But I think it's a better title than Let Us Pray. Yeah, <laughs> Which is a title we never cared for. <laughs> <laughs> That's interesting to hear. I recently rewatched it. I- I'd seen it previously. My roommate. Um, who's also a horror fan, I, I said, hey, let's let's watch Let Us Pray. Finally, the title card came up, and he goes, oh, I see what they did there.
1: Oh,
2: oh in a bad way.
0: <laughs> well, then he we got it. It's like, a, it wild. <laughs> so it reads.
1: <laughs> we thought it was um, a little corny. We didn't really think the title of the movie should be a pun. Our title was L6, obviously. Yeah, you can understand why they think that wasn't very exciting. Well, they felt it wasn't obviously a horror movie, and it certainly sounds like a, a serious movie. It sounds like some kind of thriller. I think they tied with the idea of cell 6-6, six, six which would have sold it, you know, that would have been understandable. That's um,
2: still not,
1: not, great. not great. Titles can be tricky. It's really, my first bit of advice is if you can start off with a really good title. Oh,
2: God, yes. And often we've come up with, or maybe it's just me, I come up with the title first and everything else follows. At
1: least there's one thing you don't have to worry about if you've started off with a title that works. You are at the mercy of the idea to some extent. The idea is in charge. So if you're lucky enough to have an idea that starts ringing bells, then you just have to listen to the idea, and it kind of tells you where it wants to go. And there are certain things that might be fun to do, but you realize they're not part of this idea. You can't, you can't incorporate them. Lots of things would make life easier uh, when you're making movies, but unfortunately, you're working at the behest of the original spark and you have to be faithful to it, otherwise you blot you out what what's interesting about it in the first place. They, oh, well, maybe we could shoot this in Hawaii, because that might be more agreeable than <laughs> shooting it in a freezing warehouse in Scotland. Um, or oh, Ireland. But then, you know, the story doesn't want to go to Hawaii. You know, it just wouldn't work there. No. Um, I'm starting to sound like David Lynch, but when he, when he talks about uh, letting the, the story take control, and it, it tells you what to do. But it is sort of true, without getting too mystic about it. They can start off as very, very small things, but they grow. Once you've got, like, a one-line idea, there's already so much in that one line that's going to dictate what you're allowed to do and what you're not allowed to do.
0: I completely believe that, too. That when you're writing, you need to be true to the concept. You know, if you're pushing it into an area that... the idea doesn't belong. The, the story starts to fall apart. So I, I don't think that's mystical or, or crazy at all. I think that's just a fundamental truth of writing. With Let Us Pray, which one of you two had that original germ of an idea? Out of the
2: two of us, as a team, bizarrely, it's me that's the ideas man slash woman slash person. I'm quite good at coming up with concepts, but very bad uh, following through and actually writing them. The
1: starting point for this one was interesting because it was almost a commission, which doesn't often happen. But we heard of a producer friend who was trying to put together film ideas which could take place essentially in one location with a limited number of characters uh, to be made for a low budget.
2: Yeah, so I immediately thought the perfect the model for that is John Carpenter's assault on eighteen fourteen. So. We thought, okay,
1: well, maybe it's a police station. I think um, I was excited about police stations because there have been very, very few British police movies in the last decades. So there have been a couple of cop shows that were on television, and I think there was a, a lack of confidence in the British film industry. They didn't want to do cops on the big screen because they didn't trust themselves to do anything with it that would make it cinematic. Well, that's a, an area that nobody is exploiting, and a horror movie about cops in the UK would be unique. We stole part of our original idea from Kiyoshi Kershaw from Cure, which is about essentially an evil hypnotist, a serial killer who doesn't kill anybody. But compels other people to do this. He sort of unlocks their killer instincts, more or less by his mere presence. And that was our high concept starting point. Somewhat um, smothered in the finished film. That was the the one thing I one thing I think didn't come off too well is that due to rewrites and the desires of the producers, what the film was originally about got somewhat buried. Um, so there's lots of things in the film that we wrote or that we wrote part of, but the original idea that we were interested in exploring
2: was uh, that within every single human being is evil, but there are various things that stop us from acting those that evil out. So we thought, what about if you had a guy who, just by being in his physical presence, would be a disinhibitor so you couldn't stop yourself.
1: He unlocks what's inside people, and we weren't so much interested in who he was.
2: They wanted to make him really ambiguous. So he was the devil to one character, uh, the Christian policeman, but to the other characters, he represented different things, according and to their views.
1: All of this um, ambiguity. I think was viewed by the people who ended up producing and it. Forced. It never got off the ground really with the original producers. They developed it. They gave us a little bit of money. We cheated on the one location thing, and we expanded the cast of characters slightly. Then it was picked up by new producers, who and we had a very good relationship with them for uh, a while. And their notes were mostly quite sensible, and we agreed. And whenever anybody gives you a note, it's, well, it's always worth. Acting on the assumption that they are responding to something that needs doing, uh, so I always try to have a positive attitude to notes. And then the notes started getting to be things that we didn't so much agree with. And my interpretation of it is, and this might be useful to prospective producers, is when you live with a producer with, with a project for quite a while, it loses its impact. So the content of the script that was shocking and bloody and horrific starts to become kind of limp and dull. Because so they, they wanted to add more. They wanted more violence, basically. Yeah. They kept asking for more violence, and we kept providing it fairly happily. There was this note that came in, and wouldn't it be good if all of the characters had some kind of terrible guilty secret, and then you could have flashbacks, and the flashbacks could give you more violence. And then we said, well, that's the one thing we, we wouldn't want to do, because... This it doesn't was, really make sense. All these evil people are... Concentrated in this small town in Scotland. We were worried about the plausibility of it, and, <laughs> and they were strangely not worried about that. And we were worried that a story that was really about people being corrupted, people yielding to the violence inside them, that would lose all of the character arcs if the people were already violent. You know, you've got nowhere to go. So That, that really upset us, and we changed stuff under protest at that point, and then eventually they find another writer to make more changes for them. What was nice about the finished film is that when Brian O'Malley came in to direct it, he came up with stuff that was nothing to do with script. It was purely it was a visual ideas that gave you a sense of why yes. these characters were all gathered in one tiny town.
2: Yes, so he makes the town empty, apart from them. And it's like, yes. where is this place? Is this a real place? Are they in Purgatory, perhaps. Things like that that not really help. Amongst
1: the many clever things he did, he brought ambiguity back into the film uh, by the back door.
2: We can't really praise Brian highly enough, can we?
1: All the things that we weren't allowed to do in terms of making things mysterious, he was able to do without changing a word of the script that he'd basically be handed and told to film. Using his great visual skills, he solved a lot of the things that were
0: problematic in it so we were very very lucky we got brian o'malley that's really fascinating watching the film i think i do have that expected reaction that you were kind of touching upon where i'm thinking to myself this is a very condensed number of serial killers all in the same town and, and all working at the same place too amazingly you raise that with the producers and we would get the line uh, i don't think that matters
2: mm.
1: and,
2: and and you really- can't you can't really argue with I don't think
1: that matters. You can only find out that it's a sentence that begins with the word, I don't think.
2: Oh, you bad man. (laughs) And
1: I always have trouble. (laughs) I always have trouble with that, you know, as... um it's it's the things that writers care about that other people might not care about but audiences, I think, do care about it
2: Yeah, I think they're perhaps crediting their audiences with a lack of intelligence that they actually have They do have intelligence They um, they can read movies
1: And audiences like things to have a point
2: Our movies do not have to be dumb
1: They can be dumb and still have a point We started off with a point but we lost sight of what it was
0: a moment ago, you were praising Brian. The film does have a very striking visual language, and I also had the sense while watching it that that maybe this is a, a town that exists outside of you know the normal realm because it is populated entirely by these monsters. You you never see anyone else.
1: Thank God you got Brian visual clues. I think that it just makes everything better when you can assume that this isn't a naturalistic town. This is some kind of strange pocket. Non-reality, yeah. carded off to have these people have been gathered here for judgment. Uh, none of which has anything to do with the movie we wanted to make, but it at least makes sense, and yes. it is, and it's pretty intriguing. You could make you could make a number of interesting films on that premise.
0: Can we go back for a moment? You mentioned Fiona that you're the idea person for the most part in this partnership.
2: it a- probably disagree. Yeah, I occasionally come up with ideas <laughs> right. and then don't do anything with them, well, and I then think- David has to
1: take over. The things that we've done as a partnership have mainly been Fiona's idea. Oh. Now, the other things I've done on the side uh, that might be my idea or might be. I always work with a collaborator, though, pretty much. So He's
0: got a very, very good collaborator at the moment. Do you always work together, or do you have separate partners that you, you write with as well?
2: I've only ever written with one other person, uh, a guy called Terry Gross, who I met at a screenwriter's workshop a few years ago. And David also got involved with that project, too. But I've never written with anybody else.
1: And I've written with a succession of different
2: Yeah, I've, I've written
1: with Terry, and I've written with you, and that's it. I wrote a couple of scripts with a guy called Andy Gonzalez, uh, who's a musician. I wrote a movie about Sonny Bean, the lowland Scottish cannibal. That should uh, still be made, because that was a great script. That went nowhere. <laughs> and I work with a guy called Alex
2: Livingston. Alex is a genius. I adore Alex. we just made a short film together, and we're seeking funding to develop that for a very time. I've managed to involve myself
1: in in that as well. Well, You were invited. I invited you in. Oh, thank you, dear.
0: (laughs) (laughs) We're (laughs) developing a feature and a TV series idea based on the same uh, concept. What do you find is the advantage of working with a writing partner?
2: It's not as lonely. And also yes. you can bounce ideas around.
0: In theory, it's not so much that the labour is
1: halved.
2: It's because not, because it's definitely not halved.
1: Yeah, you have somebody else there that you feel guilty about. You're not moving the project forward. You want to have yeah, another and few pages. And I'm the one
2: carrying all the guilt because I'm not working hard enough.
1: But you want <laughs> to have another few pages to show the other person and you want to see what pages they've got and however it works because there's different ways of doing it.
2: Well the actual physical writing the analogy I used was a relay write you do your bit of writing and then you pass it on to the other writer and then they write it for a bit and then they pass it back to mm-hmm. you and then hopefully you can't see the join. but at um, the idea yeah. stage it's like
1: ping pong yes. you're just passing ideas back and forth. If you have a fairly good strong synopsis one of you could start writing at the beginning the other could start writing in the middle and you can just carry on until the first bit meets up with the second bit and the second bit gets finished. Or you can take you can fragment it still further. The Sonny Bean script with all the sort of flashbacks. It was basically a period movie where of Roar Dogs.
2: And if, funnily enough, it was a siege. Again yeah. it was the low budget factor. How do, how do we how meet this cheaply but effectively?
1: Sieges are good ways of doing low budget horror. But the thing from another world going back to
2: Well, John, John Carpenter was a big um Night of the Living Dead Howard it was, who directed the, the uh, original, thing?
1: think? Uh, uh, Christian Nivey, but harry Hawks produced
2: So Carpenter was a yeah. big Hawks fan. So he was taking a lot of the atmosphere and, and ideas from that and putting it in his...
1: And almost as much into salt and pretion
2: So basically there's nothing original on the planet. That's a good thing
1: to tell yourself. <laughs> but, yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, there are different combinations which can feel fresh. Yes. The weird thing about this is we, we purposely didn't look at any carpenter when we were writing it. No, we, we didn't we've seen those films but we didn't want to We didn't to. go back.
2: We didn't revisit them.
1: Originally I was kinda of hoping that I might get to direct Sussex. I probably wouldn't have gone out carpenterish with it because the story was already carpenterish. But I was but, blown away by what Brian Yeah, did.
2: Brian Brian did a magnificent job and then the composers came in. And and he just
1: embraced the John Carpenter. Mm-hmm. I think you know, Brian has a lot of influence, but Carpenter is a big one. The team of him and his cinematographer and his editor yeah. and his composer uh, uh, just—they're unbeatable. Absolutely superb. Uh, and then the, some, some interesting special effects people, some interesting uh, actors. Let's uh, not
2: forget. Yes, let's yeah. not forget.
1: It's a weird. It's a weird one. Where it's the film that we have. Uh, Appropriately written. We are the only ones with their names on it as writers, and we like everything about it except the script. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my god. So
2: get used to that.
1: There are, I think, some ways of protecting yourself against that. I can't look back on this and see anything that we could have done differently in this particular circumstance. But What would probably have been helpful would be to have had an alliance with Brian, because at the point he came on it, we were no longer were working on it.
2: Yeah, so we were in Edinburgh, we had no contact with him. We never met him. We didn't We so. didn't meet him until the film was over. Yeah. We would have could. got on really well, I think. Yes, I think
0: so, and, and it, could have, it could have been really different, or maybe better, even. You mentioned him a moment ago, protecting the script a bit more. What else could you have done at that point?
2: I think we both liked trying to retain the ambiguity,
1: but the producers didn't really want that.
0: What can you do? At a certain point, we were making changes
1: that we didn't believe in and we're getting paid yeah, we, for doing it. So this becomes, is our, our first
2: proper chance to get a feature film made, and we've been so close quite a few times, and we were like, oh, we just have to compromise and do what they want.
1: So that kind of becomes hack work, and it's not something you can be really proud of. The producers are still doing exactly what they, in theory, should be doing, which is making sure that they've got a makeable, sellable, appealing commercial project. It's the writers who are not doing what the writers should be doing which is trying to write the best film they can. We no longer believed that we were writing the best version of this as possible to do. So that got really depressing, mm-hmm. but we were still getting paid for those rewrites. You could just let somebody else finish it. You could take your name off of it if you were ashamed of it. But, you know, we'll, we'll keep our names on it. No, because um,
2: so this would be, and is, our first feature film screen credit. Mm-hmm. It's important to
1: have that. And it, it ends up being a film that we're not shamed of, so there is a happy ending to this. The only thing that one could have done would be if one, if one had a strong director as part of the mix already at that point, and if you were in agreement with that director, then you would have some protection. Because I think they were pretty willing to listen to Brian. I think they respected his ability and judgment. Can he be more than they respected ours ultimately? Yes. Right. The writer is presumptively wrong if the producer reads the script and feels there's something not right. And the producer may not have any idea of what that not right thing is. I
2: think that the hypheny, the writer-director has far more power than
1: the writer on their own. You can also get stuck with, with a lazy director because we've had that before. and uh, Nothing you can do in the writing will protect you against a bad director. No advice to give on that. If you don't have control of who the director is, a director is brought in, and if they're not talented, there's no way of writing the script to guard against the kind of mistakes we, tr- make. we
2: actually tried. On We won't go into details, but We tried to take the curse off it by making it easy for whoever came on board to direct it by writing certain things that suggested a way of
1: shooting it. The technique is don't write things like close-ups in a script. But if you write something like a hand turns a doorknob, anybody reading that will imagine a close-up. So the director reads that and goes, oh, I know what I could do here. I could do the close-up of the hand turning the doorknob. What a brilliant idea. You guide the director the way you want to go. We should be clear that we're talking about a TV episode that we wrote. Okay,
2: if you want to go that far.
1: Well, yes, because (laughs) we're not talking about cell 6 here. We're not talking about cell 6. We're talking about Let's Pray. We wrote a TV episode, and uh, only God could have helped that director.
2: Or 6. Could help him, by, I don't know, by murdering
1: them. or Manipulating him into doing a better job. So, yeah, oh, I should
2: have said that. That's terrible. You're
1: dependent on people. Will be able to Google that and find them. You're dependent on having a good director. Uh, the, the The writer can talk about how important the script is, and you you're correct to say you know the script is everything. But in the hands of a bad director, the script is nothing. Everything can be ruined. Even without changing a word of the script, it can just be done so badly that the good ideas become bad. and They just curdle. And that is praise a nice example of a director doing such a great job with material that was a little up and down. So the bad stuff mostly gets better, and the good stuff fulfills its potential. On a tiny little movie, you can have a measure of creative control. You're making a little ex- exploitation. Movie and if you deliver the exploitative material, surely then you get to do what you want, like uh, George Romero was able to have a black man as his lead character in Vision of the Body Snatchers*, because no, in, a, in *Night of the Living
2: Dead*. Because at the same nobody cares. Time, at the same time, you had *Guess Who's Coming to Dinner*, which, in hindsight, is really embarrassing. Uh-huh. But you look at *Night of the Living Dead*, and that's not embarrassing now.
1: But you're allowed to do it because nobody cares, uh, as long as there's zombies eating people. Yeah, it, it doesn't matter whether you have so, unusual racial politics.
2: horror, horror movies, genre movies can be great vehicle for ideas and social well, change even.
1: But what we discovered is that you can make, be making a film for virtually nothing. Uh, you're getting paid very, very little and you still don't get to make it the way you intended. I think in America it might be easier where people are just used to the idea of making films. Here's a level of executive oversight and, to use a pejorative term, uh, interference, it's surprisingly high considering you might be making a film for you know, under, under a million quid for a small sum. I think at least we'll get to do it the way we want. But not necessarily. That, I think, is unfortunate. It should be possible to make something so cheaply that you get to make your own decision.
0: I think you're right. The assumption here, at least, is that, you know, if you're making a movie for a million or less, as long as you deliver, you know, some spatter and a good kill or two throughout, you're pretty much given free reign to do whatever you feel like. That's at least the cultural expectation. I think it's because
1: when you have a certain amount of product being made, as you do in America, they can look at a small film and say, here's here's the amount of effort it's worth putting into this. producer. Here's how much we'll mess about with in order to make sure that it delivers on its commercial requirements. There'll be far, far more oversight on a big film than on a small film. Here we only really make small film producers in the UK. They all want to get their hands on it and mess about with it and be able to say, We we put that in, that was our idea. And I found this with executive producers at all levels in television, film schemes. Why do you think and, that is? Well everybody likes their own ideas best. And if you come to them with a fully formed thing, then that is an opportunity for them to inject their own ideas into it, whether they belong Yeah, or but not.
2: surely that's the writer's job. Yeah, you would have thought.
0: Brian had a really astonishing visual language approaching The rewritten script, I'm wondering if, maybe on any future projects, if you would reach out to him or a specific director and get them involved earlier on. We would certainly like to work with Brian again. He has his own idea, so he's developing his own project. Yeah, I mean, if you're writing for
1: somebody else, it's very good if, unlike in this case, if you know who that person's going to be. We wrote the script initially for me, then for whoever was going to come along, and then with a different director who dropped out, and then Brian inherited the project after we left it. Anything which allows more contact and communication between writers and directors is is good. Uh, We would definitely say, if you're doing it again, we'd ideally like to know the director and have conversations with him. And I think that would would help everything, especially if he has a relationship with the producers and they trust it. immediately
0: helpful. It sounds like it must have been just incredibly frustrating with Let Us Pray because it got handed off in the development stages a few different times and it became what it is and that's not really in your hands anymore. What are you working on next and how do you keep motivated and focused um, having gone through an experience like that? There's two things that can be damaging to your energy as a writer and one of them, oddly enough, is getting paid
1: because uh, the, the first, the first <laughs> time you get paid, uh, you find that the next project is it's really hard to get started unless somebody's going to pay you. If they're going to pay you, it's easy. Uh, you have an awful you lot of failure, money. But going from paid to unpaid is tough. So going back and trying to kickstart something that would then generate some money and attract some interest is kind of tough. And then doing something where it doesn't work out the way you'd originally planned is, is depressing. This one came with a happy ending because Brian and his team did such a great job. It may not be what we set out to do, but I'm quite proud to have my name on that. I'm Gaged frankly in.
2: amazed that my name's on it.
1: <laughs> I've just co-written and directed a, a short film, which is World War Two science fiction, horror, <laughs> comedy, spy film. Wow. Uh, uh, called The North Leech Horror. And, and starring? Starring a guy called Freddie Fox. Um the next Big thing. I wanted to create a sort of iconic horror character. There hadn't really been one for a while. He's sort of like Dr. Frankenstein in, in the Peter Cushing era. I realized there was something sort of amusing about these, those kind of mantis because they never learn from their mistakes. Good recurring comedy character. Like Herbert West, the animator. is a guy who will... He's you know, going despite the yeah. terrible things that happen. Yes. It would seem like this is not a good idea, uh, but he's driven by an obsession. I created a character called Whits Inside... Is a mad scientist helping the British war effort in World War II. Uh, I tried to draw the connection between Dr. Frankenstein and Wiley Coyote. Uh, the f- <laughs> the f- <a> fanatic <laughs> somebody redoubles his efforts with every defeat. So we made a short film about it. and uh, Which is
2: great, by the way, and I'm not doing that because I'm lying.
1: And we're hoping that he uses a proof of concept to, to make the feature film and.
2: Or a TV or show, the, or, or both.
1: Or a TV show. So we're working on scripts. Uh, with my co-writer and with Fiona now.
2: So, that's what we were doing yesterday. We were working up uh, an episode, a TV episode, I guess.
0: Which <laughs> it
2: was, sounds it was, amazing. Yes. <laughs> but it was my idea. It was another one of my, in quotes, concepts. I'm not really a fan of the idea of writer's law, it's more a case of just not being able to get started. But I'm really good at procrastinating. My main thing is research. Oh, I have to go from and research this, and the research takes years. Yeah, procrastination
1: is a problem. It is actually part of the writer's process. Part of the process is to procrastinate until you can't procrastinate anymore.
2: Yeah, but I, I get
1: refined
2: it to fine art. Yes.
1: It, helps. <laughs> it really helps to have a deadline, if that's the case, a meaningful deadline. It's terrible the role money has in this. As soon as somebody actually pays you the first time, it actually... You know, I think it does actually disincentify you I have to do
2: anything unpaid. I know, but it's also really important in that writing is like exercising your muscles. If you don't do it, the muscles atrophy. That is really important for a writer. Writers have to write. Yes. Don't do what I'm doing, which is just sitting <laughs> around like a lump. But you are. Write coming. something.
0: You do generate ideas all the time. If you could give any sort of advice to aspiring writers or aspiring filmmakers, what would you say to them?
2: Don't do crazy fools. You have to be realistic. You have to go into it, realising that it's not going to be a wonderful fairy tale and it's going to be hard. I but don't. if you really love it, then you have, like us, then you have no option but to carry on. And don't stop. That's the other thing. Lots of people just fall by the wayside.
1: I would say, well, if you're a fast enough to do it. You don't need advice, you're going to do it anyway, whether you're ever rewarded for it or not. If not, then then don't do it unless it's going to hurt not to do it. You have to really, really want to do it because it's hard work and depressing things happen yes. sometimes. And there are wonderful rewards, but you often have to wait quite a long time for yes, it to come. Do. Yes, you do. <laughs> so,
2: and don't go into it thinking, oh, it's just a way of, of getting famous and making money. Yeah. Forget about that.
1: And then... You have to be expressing something. Lots of things out there that have spectacular special effects or, or creative ways of killing people, but they're empty. Have something that you want to get out. But exploring it has something to have a brain,
2: it has to have an idea.
1: You're exploring something about your attitude to the world with this, and if that attitude is unique or different in some way then it, makes it interesting. You should be aiming to do something that's at least a bit original, even though there may be nothing you understand. You should be combining things in a way that we have to Yeah.
2: Yes. My science fiction script idea is a real kind of mash-up of genres. And I'm still very keen on that idea. and re- I should really be writing it. Mm-hmm. And I think you do agree.
1: Build yourself into writing. Because
2: <laughs> um, you, you've got elements of science fiction, country house murder mystery, locked room. Don't tell him. Sorry,
1: much, shut up. I think it's also dangerous to talk too much about. Oh yeah,
2: because you take away the energy. So don't yeah. talk about your project too much. Do because it because it takes the energy away from doing it.
1: The key thing is to do there it. There are a lot of people who talk their movies and never write them. I don't have a gift for is writing stuff that's super cheap. *Let us mm. pray is my idea for a cheap movie, but in fact, it's you know it's full of special effects. It's full of uh, gore. Multiple characters. The central setting is not somewhere where you can just go and make a movie. But it's was sort of a studio build. If you're lucky and you have the kind of brain that can produce something, that can be made for, for I, zero money. It
2: wasn't zero money, but I think one of the best low-budget movies that I've ever seen is Cube. People in a Cube!
1: One cube that they could light differently. Yes! That's um, really clever. That was pretty smart. And then i very, very fond of Pontypool. And it's a movie where I out They're in a radio station. A lot of thought went into it, and it has perfect reasons for being the way it is, so the things about it that are low-budget are also brilliantly creative. Start with something cheap if possible something that won't cost a lot but can be done and done well but that is interesting the number of things that you have to have in place is is a little bit dizzying it has to have a reason to exist it has to be about something it has to be achievable it has to inspire you with the passion that will cause you to get it made ideally it's something that you can try and make with friends
2: Although your friendships can be totally destroyed by the end of
1: the subject. <laughs> you know, probably to lose one, at least one friend per project.
2: <laughs> maybe they were never your real friends again. Well, that's where the
1: ruthlessness comes in as well, because it means that you ultimately, uh, even, even if I'm supposedly this nice guy, I'm prepared to trade off the relationship in favor of the film if, if it comes down to it.
0: What is it about horror and the other genres that the two of you are working in, uh, science fiction? What is it about these genres that you find so appealing and that keeps you coming back to it creatively?
2: Um, I was always fascinated by horror movies and science fiction from, just from a very early age. And I can't really explain it rationally. I was just drawn to it.
1: You take a, uh, a therapist to figure out. Right,
2: why? why, why, why people, why writers are drawn to a particular subjects? And it's strange, my right, interest in horror, um, because I'm a very neurotic, nervous person. So it's very odd that I love horror as much as I do.
1: It's not making up for a lack of anxiety in no, your
2: life. Absolutely not.
1: The one thing we're not so interested in is the sort of horror that is just uh, battering the audience yeah. with unpleasantness. And it's your, your... Also,
2: let us praise like that. <laughs> but I think that
1: one becomes kind of funny. It was interesting seeing it with a big audience in Edinburgh, a house twice, and a lot of laughter, which wasn't necessarily a joke. It was at just the, the way the situation gets out of control. It just escalates to a ridiculous level, so it becomes funny. I don't know if it plays differently on home video, but I think it's somewhat amusing. We put jokes in, and, and not all of them made it into the film,
0: but I hadn't expected it to get as many laughs as it did.
2: Yeah, that was interesting. We have to thank our cast as
0: well for making it fun. Yeah. I think I had a similar experience watching it. And I think this is something that happens really with, with almost every horror film. There there gets a point where the violence on screen gets to be so overwhelming that you, you have to do something to relieve that tension. And sometimes the audience just laughs. I mean, that's that's the only option that's, you have. Well, that's what
2: horror movies are all about, in a way, is a, a release of tension. Because your automatic response, after a fright watch, uh, watching a horror movie is to laugh. There is a, a strong connection between fear and humor. The location of those parts of the brain deal with fear and humor being quite close together physically. So comedy and horror go together really, really well.
1: Because most of my stuff is consciously somewhat comedic, it was interesting to see that way getting lots of laughs that we hadn't consciously planted. Nobody's in control. The audience decides how to take the film <laughs> and uh, You may think yourself master manipulators of the audience, but ultimately their responses happen. It's really great when you do something and an entire audience winces or reacts in, in some particular way. But also, don't completely have the audience on a string. They get they have yeah, a they play, do their own thing and and it's unpredictable. And different audiences react differently. The best reaction in, in Let Us Pray yes. is the strongest.
2: Yes, and, yes, and consistently, it's always the same. That is the, the,
1: the breaking fingernail. Ooh, which just such a tiny thing
2: but but it's something actually realistic that people can imagine happening to them and they don't like it it's people's worst nightmare yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> you know what that noise means it's time for the lightning round there are no wrong answers. There are only fast answers, okay? So, first one. What is your least favorite trope in horror films? Killing the people in the sequel who survived in the first
2: film. The unnecessary dis- dis- disrobing and dismemberment of women.
0: What is your favorite memory related to filmmaking? <laughs> they're all horrible. But They, you, they become I know, kind of
1: horrible.
2: No, no, right? Actually, it's probably getting, getting Let Us Pray, getting the green light, and we finally realized...
1: Well, this is going to happen. The short film I just did, we had a day outdoors on a hillside in blasting wind, snow and rain.
2: That's your good memory? With,
1: with no shelter and no toilet facilities, and we survived it.
0: And that became a really good night. <laughs> <laughs> What's your go-to cure for writer's block?
2: I don't have one because
0: I'm rubbish.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Curious to write and maybe to write a different thing from the thing that you were writing because I get the word's flowing again. Pushing might not help, but going around the side of it and doing something else might. Who is your favorite starship captain? Uh, my favorite starship involving movie is Forbidden Planet. I, I was going to say Forbidden Planet. I don't know if Leslie Nielsen is my favorite. Leslie captain. Nielsen, he's not because he's kind of dull in that movie,
2: he hasn't find his thing. Um, favorite of Captain. Oh, I love Captain Picard. He's so cool.
0: What are you currently reading?
2: I am currently reading Slade House by David Mitchell, who wrote Cloud Atlas.
0: I just read a book called
1: Shooting Script by Gavin Lyle, which is a thriller adventure story. He's an entirely out-of-print author of really good adventure stories. What is it that scares you?
2: Life. I have a fairly sort of funny disposition, but things in movies,
1: it's, it sounds really stupid, but... The scariest thing seems to be a really scary thing walking slowly towards you. That has a history of working for me quite well. And Bob and Twin Peaks being a good, a good example. He, um, of that. I
2: think I developed this technique as a child and I still use it as an adult. I became very aware of soundtrack, what was crucial to shock moments. So, what I do, the last time I did it was with The Conjuring 2, <laughs> is screw up my eyes a bit so I can still see. I'm not totally blind. I can still see a bit, a bit blurry. And I stick my fingers in my ears so I don't get too blown away by the jump.
0: (laughs) Thank you so much, David and Fiona, for spending some time with me and talking about your craft.
2: I'm amazed that you wanted to speak to us in the first place.
0: Thank you very much. And for thank you. Talk. No, it was illuminating. It was it was great talking to you. If people want more information about uh, your past work or what you're up to, is there a place that they should go to? Do you do you have a, a site that they can check or any social media that you're on? I have a blog called Shadowplay, which is all kinds of film.
2: And it gets updated practically every
1: day. So people can all drop by and ask. And
2: I'm I'm on Twitter and Facebook just Talking Rubbish. I am also
1: on Twitter and Facebook Talking Rubbish.
2: There you go.
0: (laughs) Sounds great. Uh, Thank you. Thank you so much for your time. And I hope to hear more from you both soon. It sounds like the projects you're working on, they sound like a lot of fun. Thank Thank you. you. Bye. Big thanks to David Cairns and Fiona Watson. With the time zone difference between L.A. and Edinburgh, I really appreciate I appreciate that they spent so much time with me talking about their craft and filmmaking. Be sure to check out Let Us Pray when you have a chance, and keep an eye out for their future projects. We're taking a few weeks off over here as we finish up the interviews for the remainder of the season, but we'll be back soon with updates and new episodes. At the Point of a Knife was created and hosted by me, Eric Nabaretti, and produced by Renee Amador. At the Point of a Knife is an Automaton Creative production. For more of our work, visit our new site, automatoncreative.com. Logo and title design by Jonathan B. Perez. For more of his work, check out jonathanbperez.com. Be sure to follow the show on Facebook and subscribe to us on your favorite podcatcher. And help more people find the show by sharing with friends and leaving us a review. It really helps.